This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with hoops today from All In with Chris Hayes, The David Pakman Show, The Jimmy Dore Show, The Young Turks, Counterspin, The Tom Hartman Program, Activism from Half in Ten, and Good Books Radio. Now, let's see if we have any leftover goodwill towards man still kicking around and consider putting it to good use. If you were successful, somebody along the line gave you some help. There was a great teacher somewhere in your life. Somebody helped to create this unbelievable American system that we have that allowed you to thrive. Somebody invested in roads and bridges. If you got a business, that you didn't build that. That was a speech that launched the infamous you-didn't-build-that-faux-controversy of the 2012 presidential campaign. The president's contention that it takes more than one individual's hard work to succeed in America was seized upon, spun around, and answered by Republicans who cast it as an attack on small business owners everywhere and spent the rest of the campaign sloganeering around it. Well, in the second installment of his interview with Bill O'Reilly last night, the president was seen gently suggesting that maybe on his way to fame and fortune, Bill O'Reilly might have gotten a little bit of help from government policy somewhere along the way. And Bill O'Reilly was having none of it. I think that you are much more friendly to a nanny state than I am. I'm more of a self-reliance guy. You're more of a big government will solve your problems guy. During his sit-down with President Obama, Bill O'Reilly brought out one of his more famous themes. He's a self-made man, and those who don't subscribe to his political philosophy are looking for a handout. The president took issue with that. You and I took advantage of certain things. I don't know about you, but I got some loans to go to college. No, I painted it, houses. I didn't get the, uh, Well, I, no, I, I, that's, I, I, see, that's why I am. I, I painted houses during the summer, too. It still wasn't enough. As Bill O'Reilly will be the first to tell you, the place that made him is Levittown, New York. Nowhere else on this planet could a wise guy from Levittown, with no uncle in the business, no social skills at all, I'm sure you'd agree, kiss nobody's butt ever, right. rise up and command the position that I command. That couldn't happen in Switzerland, it couldn't happen in Japan, <laughs> it happens in America. And though it might come as a shock to Bill O'Reilly, Levittown is a creation of government policy. In the suburban post-war boom, Long Island's Levittown was the idyllic model. Back in 1950, it was easier to buy the middle-class life. Levittown, New York, was the first of the mass-produced suburban communities, complete with something called shopping centers. But Levittown wasn't created by God. It was created by a lot of hard-working people, a few smart developers, and federal housing policy. After the war, returning GIs were looking for affordable homes to start their adult lives. Among them was World War II veteran Eugene Burnett, who, in a 2003 PBS documentary, explained what happened to him and his wife when they tried to buy a house in Levittown. I went up to the salesman, we're interested in your home, we're interested in buying one, and uh, what is the procedure? Is there an application to be filled out? So forth. So he looked at me, looked around, and he said to me, he says, listen, it's not me. But the owners of this development have not as yet decided to sell these homes to Negroes. The FHA underwriters warned that the presence of even one or two non-white families could undermine real estate values in the new suburbs. These government guidelines were widely adopted by private industry. 
point is, discriminatory federal policies, like those of the Federal Housing Administration, helped build the wealth in America's suburbs, and they also helped build the poverty in America's ghettos. And it only started to end in 1968 with the passage of the Fair Housing Act. Now let's be clear. This doesn't take anything away from the grit, determination, and hard work of Bill O'Reilly, or anyone who came out of Levittown, or any of the other countless suburbs across America. We are all standing on a scaffold of laws and government policy that is so massive that it feels like the ground. This isn't some kind of speculation. It's documented. In 2008, the Cornell poll asked people whether they had ever used a government social program. 57% of people said no. As political scientist Suzanne Mettler writes, 94% of those who denied using a government program had benefited from at least one. The average respondent had used four. There are two types of people in America. Those who recognize that they're standing on top of something built to help them, and those who believe they are naturally giants. Rob wrote to me about unemployment benefits, and I've talked for a long time about how hugely stimulative unemployment benefits are, because if you're receiving unemployment benefits, you need that money, and you're very likely to spend that money rather than save it, thus uh, stimulating the economy. And Rob wrote to me, and he said, why don't the Democrats go after the Republican blocking of unemployment extension? I would have received $2,000 myself from unemployment but I actually got more when unemployment wasn't extended. Listen to this, ladies and gentlemen, because these boneheads don't realize if the right hand doesn't pay you, the left hand will, safety net-wise. I went from $75 a month while on unemployment, or rather, from $75 a month in unemployment to $200 in food stamps, $250 in rent payments, $150 in cash, Medicaid, which included three doctor's visits and two prescription refills, as well as a physical for college admissions, TB shots, and a dental checkup with full x-rays. Drastically more than what the unemployment benefit extension would have provided, and thus he would not have received some of those other benefits. And this is, you know, this is one micro example of this, right? And, and it's the specifics of, and we know this, and when we think about if we provided a basic income to everyone that was higher than poverty, you could wipe out so many social welfare programs, you might actually save money, right? We've talked about that broadly, Lewis, in, in concept. This is one specific story. Okay, uh, some of these numbers may, be, uh, uh, may have been rounded. This may not be a situation that applies to anyone. But think about it for a second. We can analyze why it does not make sense to cut unemployment benefits for people Think about the multiplier effect, first of all. You get another $100 in unemployment benefits, you spend that at the grocery store, for example. The grocery store then is spending that buying food, hopefully from local farms, but in part probably from, from uh, at least partially those big food companies. 
They have employees. Those employees are paid. They go out and buy food. The stimulative multiplier effect of unemployment benefits is very, very high. And now we have this added layer that Rob writes about, which is by removing unemployment benefits, you do increase the benefits from other social welfare programs that some individuals qualify for. I think there's just a lot of misinformation around this. And, uh, you know, I don't think a lot of people think of unemployment benefits as food stamps, of something that is stimulative. They think you're giving these poor people money and they're going to go out and spend it on drugs and alcohol. Um, Which, by the way, we've tested and doesn't seem to be happening to any significant extent. Right. It's, it's not really an issue. But I think that's what a lot of people are thinking when you talk about unemployment. And there's the socialism aspect of it. They yeah. think it's this evil socialist thing. I don't know if people will ever get it in this country. In other countries, they do get it. Everybody's better off. And, and I'm not even touching the third layer of the analysis, which is for society, when there are fewer people that are hungry, when there are fewer people that don't know if they're going to even be able to have a home next week, that's better for everybody. Forgetting about the economic stimulus that is, that is measurable, there is an intangible benefit that is better for all of society when you have fewer people in these conditions. Uh, I, it's bewildering to me that so many people in this country just refuse to see it. So what I don't understand is when the economy goes bad, the people who get angry at the poor. And I've always said, and I'll say it again, that if you ever find yourself being angry at someone lower on the economic ladder than you, there's a pretty good chance you're being manipulated by someone higher on the economic ladder than you. You know, the people, my brother is convinced that people on welfare are all scammers. <laughs> He's like, oh, the people who are on welfare, they're all scam. Yes, they're such scammers that they've rigged the system so that they are now the poorest people in the state. <laughs> oh, that's quite a rigging. God damn it. How did they manipulate the system so now they qualify for welfare? Oh, those goddamn fat cats at the bottom. <laughs> I've always been angry at the fat cats at the bottom. And so that just doesn't make sense to me, right? The people who get angry at poor people. And uh, so, well, we've all read the Bible a little, right? Mostly involuntarily, I'm sure. And we all remember that in Luke 14, when Jesus said, but when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. But what a lot of people don't realize is that Jesus meant to do that, invite the poor, crippled, lame, and the blind, so we can pit them against each other. <laughs> and here is Speaker of the House of North Carolina, Tom Tillis, who just won the primary, the Republican primary, to run for Senate. So he's the Republican Senate nominee. And here's what he had to say in October of 2011 about people who receive public assistance. Hey, but what we have to do is find a way to divide and conquer the people who are on assistance. So what he opens out with is saying that we need to find a way to divide and conquer the people who are on assistance. Okay. We have to 
show respect for that woman who has cerebral palsy and had no choice in her condition that needs help and that we should help. And we need to get those folks to look down at these people who choose to get into a condition that makes them dependent on the government and say, at some point, you are on your own. We may end up taking care of those babies, but we're not going to take care of you. Yes. See, now, if... uh... First, my first question is, what the fuck question was he answering <laughs> that elicited that response? Did someone say to him? I think it was a medical thing he was uh, doing. He wants to, uh, he somehow feels that we can cure cerebral palsy by making them dicks. ha. <laughs> <laughs> Was was the question, Frank, uh, Mr. Tillis, do you have any outside-the-box ideas for sticking it to the poor? <laughs> Funny you should ask, because, yeah, I just happen to have one. And you got to love how he starts the whole thing by saying, we have to find a way to divide and conquer people who are on assistance. Yes, because yes. if America needs nothing else, it's a strong strategy to completely dominate the most helpless citizens in the republic. Thank you, Tom Tillis. And by the way, if you didn't pick up on it, when he says people who chose to get into a position where they are dependent on government, what he's talking about is unwed mothers, right? Can you do that? Can you be against abortion, contraception, meaningful sex education, and anything else that might inform decisions around the most powerful biological urge ever, and also tell women to fuck off when they get pregnant? Can you do both those things? Jimmy? Well, people, people like him are always saying the poor have to pull themselves up by their bootstraps and, and do things for themselves. So he's saying that the poor should pull themselves up by their bootstraps and destroy each other. Yeah. <laughs> that is exactly... Take the initiative. You know. <laughs> so, hey, Jimmy, I'm not familiar completely with the Bible. That was Luke 14? Yes. Was that before or after he found out that Darth Vader was dead? <laughs> That was before. Okay. That was before. So he, this guy, Tom Tillis, has a little bit more to say. Well, you know what I did? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I just noticed that he said something to the effect of maybe we'll take care of their babies, well, too. Yeah, they've got to take care of their babies. He says, we're going to take care of their babies, but we're not going to take care of you. We'll take care of the babies, but we're not going to take care of you. And that'll teach them. There's no way that that doesn't make sense, right? Your kid is going to get food and stuff, and you just have to sit there starving and regretting your decisions to have a baby. Unless your kids are nice and give you a bite. We wanted you to, we wanted you to not have an abortion and give birth to this baby, and now we want you to help us make that baby an orphan. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, because the babies have to go ahead and pull up their booty straps? Their booty straps. Hello. <laughs> nice. Yes. So Actually, he... no, we're just going to give the kids to uh, people with cerebral palsy. Yeah, yeah have them care for the kids. <laughs> I want to know who the kids can look down on. Yeah, who are the Maybe their parents, too. So here's got a little bit more to say. Let's yeah, say. we've got to start having that serious discussion. It won't happen next year wrong time because it's going to be politically charged. One of the reasons why I may never run for another elected office is because some of these things may just get me railroaded out of town. But in 2013, I honestly believe that we have to do that. Yeah, he. They, yes, we need to start having that serious discussion about pitting the cripples against the poorest in our society. Yeah, I'm pretty sure he doesn't understand what the words need, serious, or discussion means. Jimmy? 
if it was the cripples against the poor, who would you, if you were betting, you know, <laughs> who would you, who would you side with? The right. poor could probably outrun the cripples. Yeah, though. you're gonna, we're gonna be rooting for the uh, the handicapped. I guess that's the proper term in our nomenclature, right? Uh, I mean, well, who, who would win though? I mean, what are the what are the odds? I would say the poor. Yeah, I would say the poor because you know what they're they're crafty. Yeah, and they're resourceful. And they want those chairs. And they, and they sit down. The poor are lazy. They might be too lazy to run away. <laughs> so uh, I like how he says at the end, some of these things might get me railroaded out of town. <laughs> really? Did you hear him? Some of the pitting the yeah. pitting the handicapped against uh, poor mothers, single mothers, might get him railroaded out of town. He thinks that he thinks he's kind of a revolutionary thinker. This guy, he said, he's sure. That by vilifying the powerless, what he's really doing is speaking truth to power somehow. And fortunately for him, he wasn't railroaded out of town because the town he lives in is a gerrymandered district of defectives. Plus, douchebag railways doesn't go through that town. <laughs> <laughs> I just wonder. Also, if they, if they did railroad him out of town. You'd probably need a lot of hobos on the railroad. <laughs> yes. Well, let's just remember Luke 20, when he said, Then he looked up at his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And most blessed are they who turn cripples against the poor, for they really <laughs> the shit out of me. <laughs> As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently-owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com to shop at just one of the major companies with the insatiable profit incentive to help perpetuate the destructive paradigm of overconsumption and exploitative capital. Better yet, go ahead and click through to the Amazon site that serves your country just once and then bookmark it to use every time you shop, which should be as rarely as possible. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumerism altogether or at least consuming in a subversive way. So here we're going to go to Indiana Governor Mike Pence, who wants to change the policy in that state to cut uh, those who are on food stamps and are single uh, from receiving their benefits. And he uses a little analogy, which I love. We're just very anxious to make sure that able-bodied adults uh, find a pathway uh, into being able to stand on their own two feet. And, and how do you feel about people who say, well, you're targeting poor people. Haven't they, don't they have it bad enough? Now they've got to go out and do service just to get things that they pay when they were working uh, taxes into the state for? Well, I'm someone that really believes there's nothing more ennobling to a person than a job. And to make sure that able-bodied adults without dependents at home know that uh, that here in the state of Indiana, we want to partner with them in their own success. You know, it's the old story about give someone a fish, they'll eat for a day, yeah. teach them to fish, they'll eat for a lifetime. So if you cut off their food stamps and they can't eat, well, they will be ennobled through their starvation. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's literally the Hunger Games. Yeah. That's, that's exactly what he's pushing for here. But 
you know what, you, you might be surprised by this. Uh, there are things that I agree with Mike Pence on in this regard. I think we should ennoble the bankers uh, by cutting <laughs> off their government assistance. And it's not just during the economic crash where we gave them the equivalent of $7 trillion through the Treasury and the Fed. It's also the money that we continue to give them at near 0% interest rates. That sounds like mm -hmm. that, that that would hurt their nobility. Yeah. I would like to ennoble them by charging them the same interest rate that we all pay. Yeah. Wouldn't that ennoble? It would make them yeah. better, make Mo them work harder, right? Yeah, most people care about food. We care about soul food. That's right. <laughs> you know who else I'd like to ennoble? I'd like to ennoble the oil companies that are the most profitable companies in the world. I'd like mm -hmm. to take away their $14 billion in subsidies, in subsidies. Conservatives, I know you agree with me, right? I mean, mm. those are wasteful when we do it in regards to the poor. You hate it. You hate giving money to the poor or the middle class. You hate trying to educate people's kids so they can have equality of opportunity. Mm -hmm. Why would you want to give government handouts to the richest companies in the world? I mean, look, I'm not trying to be against Republicans. I'm trying to help the oil companies here. That's mm. what I care about. BP, ExxonMobil, I'm looking out for you. I don't want your nobility <laughs> ruined with our government subsidies. Yeah. Especially when you get so much more than the poor do through food stamps. Yeah. Hashtag ennoble Chevron. <laughs> uh, and the only other thing that I want to say about this is, uh, I, so I pointed out that he was going to make that analogy, and he makes uh, he makes the analogy of, you know, if you if you give the man a fish, he'll eat for a day, and if you teach him to fish, he'll eat for a life. But the analogy does require one other thing. It requires that there are actually fish out there for him to catch. If he goes to the stream and puts it out there all day long, and then doesn't have a fish after a day, and uh, then he does it all week long, and at the end of it he says there are simply no fish, and you say, well, fuck it, I'm not giving you any food, then you're not, you know, making a nice analogy. Your dick. That's all you are. And as Think Progress points out, there are two million people in the Midwest currently seeking jobs, and only one million jobs estimated actually be out there. It sounds like a million people are going to find some pretty freaking barren streams. Yes. And look, if you say welfare reform, I was for welfare reform when Clinton did it, when the Republicans were in favor of it. I think there has to come a point where you say, hey, listen, you've taken welfare for a period of time, and mm. I think that if I can help you to get a job, and mm. if I can provide daycare for you, I think you're going to be on a better path. That's perfectly fine in yeah. my book. But when you say there aren't any, there, there's a million jobs that are missing, it's not their fault. It's not that they're not trying. Yeah. It's that the jobs aren't there. There are no fish, yeah. right? And by the way, if it's anyone's fault, could very well be the bankers. Yeah, and... What are you going to do? Let them starve in the streets? That's the whole point of food stamps, is so, so that in a country like America, people aren't starving in the streets. You have to have a bare minimum of, of human decency. Yeah. Now, of course, Fox News, that puts Mike Pence on there, does not have that. So mm -hmm. I want to show you one last thing. You might have seen it as a graphic on the bottom right there uh, in the last clip that we showed you. But I want to run it for you here. This was the intro to their segment. Look at how they portray this, the food stamps that are, that are going to the poor. So I guess cut down on the sugar there, right? All right, Elizabeth, if you want food stamps, you may have to work for them. Yep. You see that? A golden hand coming out of the Midwest, by the way. Okay. Yeah. Uh, entitlement nation. So when the bankers get the $7 trillion, they're not an entitlement nation. No. No, the hand is not coming out of Wall Street. The hand is not coming out of Washington, D.C., right? Mm -hmm. When the oil companies and all the other giant, giant companies get their tax yeah. breaks, their subsidies, all the other things that they're getting, that's not entitlement nation. Yeah. When you can't feed your kids, that's entitlement nation. <laughs> okay. I mean, you, yeah. you, you watch Fox News, you think they're for you? <laughs> they're laughing at you behind your back, man.
On October 1st, the PBS NewsHour provided Republican Representative Paul Ryan another chance to explain how his ideas about deep spending cuts on social programs combined with tax breaks for the wealthy constitute an anti-poverty program. Well, that shouldn't be easy, but Ryan gets a lot of help from corporate media in the form of vague, euphemistic language that obscures rather than reveals. As when a PBS segment described Ryan's idea of slashing Medicare benefits as a plan to, quote, impose changes for future Medicare recipients to hold down costs, close quote. Well, on this recent show, Judy Woodruff posed this question. You talk about the Republican Party, how it needs to open up. But I guess one of my questions to you is how hard is that to do when many, certainly Democrats, some independents, see the Republican Party as a party that has at least in the past been perceived as as uh, against doing uh, programs for the poor, against uh, expanding Medicaid, uh, health benefits. Uh, how, do you, how do you see the challenge for the Republican Party? Do you follow that? Many people, and especially those in opposing political parties, see the GOP as having been perceived, at least in the past, as against programs for the poor and the expansion of Medicaid benefits. But these aren't perceptions held by Ryan's opponents about the past. They're facts, observed by anyone who observes facts, about the Republican Party today. As of December 2013, as USA Today reported, all 20 of the states choosing not to expand Medicaid have Republican governors. And if calling for steep cuts in spending on food stamps, Pell Grants, and other benefits for low-income groups isn't being against doing programs for the poor, it's hard to see what would be. That kind of mealy-mouthed talk no doubt encourages Ryan to keep appearing on the news hour, but it does no favors for the show's viewers. Jonathan Swift proposed it I'm just saying what he said before Think of the money we can save If we eat the poor Let's eat the poor Let's feed the people people It solves many problems And it can't be done any cheaper Let's eat the poor The young ones taste the best Then let's say those magic words It'll cost the taxpayers less Really a great initiative here to tell you about from the federal government. Not often we get these great initiatives. Of course, you can be sure that when we do get them, Republicans will be against them. This one would put $100 million from the federal government behind a very simple idea. SNAP benefits, food stamps, right? When they're used to buy local fruits and vegetables, the value increases, sometimes as much as to double the value. So you might have $10 in food stamps that you could use in the grocery store, buy processed foods, whatever you want. You go to the local farmer's market, instead of being able to buy 10 bucks of grocery store food, you can buy, potentially, $20 of local fruits and vegetables. This is such a simple and good idea, Lewis, on so many levels. First and foremost, we have to remember that, in general, uh, when you are on food stamps, typically, you need to stretch the calories per dollar. What types of food 
provide the most calories per dollar. Foods that are processed and foods that are subsidized with things like corn, high fructose corn syrup, etc. So as, as a merely economic instrument, the foods you're going to buy are going to tend to be the foods that are part of the kind of food industrial complex that have been processed beyond all belief and are not good for you because not only might you not be educated fully about the dangers of those foods, but more importantly, you need every dollar to get you as many calories as it can. So that mechanism we're aware of, Lewis. We are. We are well aware of that. The, the further problem that we encounter often is that because we know that there is not much income mobility in this country, putting aside the athletes and the celebrities and the few anecdotal stories of people going from very poor to very wealthy, in general, if you're not in a situation with much income mobility, it's likely that your parents and their parents also have a food culture that tends to go to what is the cheapest per calorie. So you may not even really understand the concept of, oh, here's how you integrate fresh vegetables into your meals. Here's why you would want to do that. So this is such a great thing because, number one, for those people, it is not only going to encourage them to buy fruits and vegetables, it's also going to make it more affordable for them to do so while limiting this dollars per calorie issue because you get a bonus. Your, your dollars go further when buying local fruits and vegetables. That's one side. But the other side, is that you're stimulating the local growers and the local economy rather than Kraft Foods or Nabisco or whoever is offering you the, the processed boxed food that you would be buying. Instead, you're stimulating the local economy. And I would not be at all surprised, Lewis, if this ended up being close to revenue neutral because of the locally stimulative impact that it would have. Agreed. Unfortunately, I think you're still going to have people who live in areas where they might not even have access to local fruits and vegetables. Of course. Uh, because of where they live, because they might not have cars. But overall, I think this is a great idea. And of course, uh, stimulative, like, you know, food stamp spending, uh, in general, the whole program is stimulative. This is even more stimulative. And it's a, it's a great idea. And Lewis, there are areas where in spite of having the financial means to get fresh produce, people still are not because right. they don't have it available. So not always will just having the means make you say, oh, you know what? It makes more sense to buy this instead of that. It makes more sense to go to the local deli than it does to go to the chain restaurant that is deep frying everything and shipping it in from halfway across the country, uh, fried, fr uh, frozen for two weeks. This is a good thing, and everything about this is absolutely positive. Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com.
I saw earlier in the week, and people who uh, watch or listen to the program every day will will know this well, that uh, you published your your 12 uh, prescription, 12 items that we could do to basically take back America or make America work again. And uh, and 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 I, I believe you'd like to go through them and, and then have people call in with their thoughts on these Here's things. Here's the story, Tom. You know, uh, I think, you know, people who listen to the show have heard you and me talk and many callers calling in about the very serious problems facing our country, which is the collapse of the middle class, growing income and wealth inequality, of the loss of millions of manufacturing jobs, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so we kind of have talked a lot about the problems, but it's important, equally important, to talk about the solutions. Where do we go forward? What makes sense? How do you revitalize the American economy so that it works for the middle class and not just the millionaires and billionaires? Uh, so I was on the floor this week uh, talking about 12 uh, specific ideas, uh, none of which, by the way, you know, people will not have thought of. I mean, not the most radical ideas in the world. But if we were to carry these out, it would very significantly transform our country and especially uh, the middle class of this country. So if you don't mind, let me just go through it. And if people want to call in during the course of the show to discuss uh, these ideas and whether they like them or not, we'd love to, I'd love to discuss it. Our first thought, uh, the truth is, is, is unemployment is not uh, 5.8%. Uh, real unemployment uh, is over uh, 11% if you include those people who have given up looking for work uh, who are, or are working uh, part-time. Uh, if we invested $1 trillion dollars in rebuilding our crumbling infrastructure. And that's our roads, bridges, um, uh, water systems, uh, wastewater plants, rail, airports, all of which need work. Uh, the people who know most about it think that we should invest $3 trillion to bring our infrastructure up to par. If you did $1 trillion over a period of some years, we could create 13 million decent paying jobs. And just imagine what America would look like and all over the country. We're rebuilding our roads. We're building, uh, rebuilding our rail system, uh, making it much more uh, efficient, uh, having state-of-the-art water systems and wastewater plants, rebuilding our dams, uh, what it would mean to America in terms of making us more efficient and productive, uh, as well as putting millions of people back to work. So rebuilding our crumbling infrastructure uh, and investing in that is something absolutely we need to do. Uh, number two, I think that climate change is real. Uh, that's what the scientists overwhelmingly tell us. If we're going to preserve this planet for our kids and our grandchildren, we need to transform our energy system. And that means investing in energy efficiency and sustainable energy, uh, making our homes and buildings uh, much more energy efficient, uh, and moving aggressively to wind, solar, geothermal, and other sustainable energies. And when you do that, the United States leads the world. We create new technologies. We also create jobs. But most importantly, uh, we protect the planet for our kids and our grandchildren. Uh, another area that interests me very much, and I'm excited about it, we're seeing a little bit of it here in Vermont, a little bit in Ohio, is the idea of worker ownerships, worker ownership of businesses. And what we see sometimes is business guys who have started a business, they want to retire, and they don't want to see their plant or their business move to China. They want their workers to continue uh, that business. We've got to make it easier for the workers and those business owners to be able to transform uh, that business into a worker cooperative. Um, 
instead of giving tax breaks to corporations who want to move jobs to China, I think we should provide tax incentives to businesses that want to uh, transform their uh, company into a worker-owned uh, enterprise. Uh, clearly, uh, in my view, uh, history is, is not debatable on this, that workers who are members of unions, who are able to negotiate decent contracts and uh, working conditions do much better than non-union workers. Uh, right now, it is, in fact, very, very hard because of employer opposition for workers to form unions. Uh, we want legislation that makes it possible for those workers, the majority of workers who signed a card saying they want to be in a union, uh, to be in a union. Uh, it goes without saying uh, that we have millions of workers in this country today who are struggling with horrendously low wages. We've got to raise the minimum wage to a livable wage. I was just at a rally in Washington, D.C. yesterday. I think there are about 150 of them all over the country where workers are fighting for a higher minimum wage for the right to join unions. Uh, those workers who are working for companies that gov get government contracts in government buildings. Uh, I was out there with them in Washington, D.C., uh, and they want to see the minimum wage raised to $15 an hour. They want to be able to join a union, and I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, clearly, when we talk about justice, it is not acceptable that women are making 78 cents on the dollar for what a man makes doing the exact same work. We need to make sure we have pay equity uh, in this country, uh, equal pay for equal work for women workers. Uh, I think an issue uh, that you and I have talked about but is not talked about anywhere near enough is our disastrous trade policies. That is NAFTA, TAFTA, Permanent Normal Trade Relations with China, which have given a green light to many companies to shut down in America uh, and move to low-wage countries. We have lost some 60,000 factories in the last uh, 12 or 13 years. We need to have companies reinvesting in America and not in low-wage countries all over the world. So trade becomes a very important part, I think, of a serious uh, an agenda to rebuild the American middle class. Uh, we live in a highly competitive global economy. Uh, we cannot compete effectively for good-paying jobs unless we have a well-educated workforce. Um, uh, some years ago, the United States led the world in terms of the percentage of our people who graduated college. Today we are in 12th place. Other countries uh, understand the significance and the importance of making sure that their people, regardless of income, get a college education. Uh, we do not. Uh, so you're having college uh, absolutely unaffordable for a lot of working class families. Other young people are graduating college deeply, deeply in debt. That's crazy. It's not only unfair to the families and the individual young people, it is stupid for our economy. We want to encourage everybody who has the ability and the desire to get a higher education, no matter what their age is, no matter what their income is, to be able to do so. You know, it stuns me that 40, 50 years ago, some of the great public universities in this country, University of California, colleges in New York City, state colleges all over this country, tuition was virtually free, virtually free. Anybody, regardless of income, could go. Today we have regressed significantly. And the cost of college is unaffordable for many. So we've got to address that issue and child care as well. If you're a working mom today, it is very hard for you to find quality, affordable child care. Uh, we have to um, deal with the disaster that is Wall Street. Uh, when you talk about the economy, we're not going to talk about significant changes in the economy uh, unless you have a financial system whose job it is to get money out into the productive economy. 
The function of a bank is not an end in itself. It is to take money in and get money out into the productive economy to those businesses and institutes, businesses that are producing real goods and services to help homeowners buy homes, to help people make the investments they need, not to be an island unto itself with the goal of making huge profits just for themselves. And what you see now is Wall Street and the major financial institutions are a world unto themselves whose only job is to make outrageous profits. Uh, Furthermore, what we have to do is reform our tax system so that the wealthy and large corporations pay their fair share of taxes. And we've got to protect the elderly and the sick. We have to not cut Social Security and Medicare. We have to expand those programs. So those are some of the areas that I think we can make some huge progress in and improve life for the middle class. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, half in ten, from the Coalition on Human Needs and the Center for American Progress Action Fund. Hopefully, you survived the holidays with a bit of goodwill towards man still intact. A special nod to those of you with challenging right-wing families, you retaining your desire to do good in the world is basically a feat of near-superhuman willpower and is appreciated. Today's campaign, Half in Ten, is straight out of A Christmas Carol, so if you'll indulge an extended holiday reference, even though it's January. At the very beginning of the tale, told most accurately in recent years by the Muppets, believe it or not, Scrooge receives a visit from two people seeking a charitable donation in order to fund what were the privately run social safety nets of the day to provide for the poor and homeless. Now, of course, as we all know, Scrooge sends them away without giving them as much as a, you know, I mean, whatever an old English equivalent of a dime was. And we can all look back and universally condemn his selfishness. However, today's conservatives may very well argue that this type of charitable giving is exactly the kind of system we should have in place. Keep the government out of it, let the churches and charities do the job they were supposed to be doing, right? Well, the problem is that we've tried that idea before, and no amount of anti-government ideology or wishful thinking can wipe away the fact that we only have the government-funded social safety net programs we do because the private churches and charities weren't able to serve the need and the government had to pick up the slack. So again, conservatives stick to the ideas that they like better, whether they work or not, and it's left up to liberals to choose the ideas we like based on the pure fact that they actually do work. Unfortunately, we can't expect visits from the Christmas ghost to force Republican leadership to change their heart, a la Mr. Scrooge, so we must turn to a campaign of real people doing real work. Half in 10 is the result of the Center for American Progress's 2007 Task Force on Poverty. They have joined forces with the Coalition on Human Needs and the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights to, well, cut poverty in half in 10 years. 
They are committed to building both public and political will to do this, and their action items address the multifaceted way activism is done when it's effective. At half in 10, that's the word 10 spelled out, dot org, the Take Action tab has several evergreen projects. You can always tell your Congress member to renew unemployment insurance that is sure to be on the table for major cuts with the incoming GOP-run Congress. Obviously, you can donate to or follow them on social media. Their feeds do a great job of aggregating current news and upcoming legislation to support or oppose with the facts that make it easy to debate those in your everyday life and networks. Then there are two unique actions which spring from a surge in storytelling to end stigma and build support that is working in feminist, anti-police state, and other equality movements. The first is a hashtag, Talk Poverty. The conversation is ongoing and a network of social media activists use it to facilitate scheduled conversations, gather and spread information, and create community. You can use the hashtag anytime, check in on it regularly to participate in the well-moderated live events. The second is a storytelling project called Our American Story, and you can participate by submitting your experience being helped by a program like job training, nutrition assistance, health coverage, tax credits, or housing. Half in 10 uses those stories to combat the false narratives of takers and welfare queens and other right-wing scare phrases. The stories are also housed by state, which makes it simple to take those stories to state and national legislators to show them what life is like for their constituents. The U.S. Census Bureau reports that one in five millennials are living in poverty, and Generation X is the first in American history that should expect to be worse off than their parents. This issue has either already affected you or it will affect you in the future, so you can toss in a dash of selfishness with that leftover holiday goodwill and get involved to prevent further cuts to the social safety net while we work to elect a more progressive Congress to expand these programs next time around. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If showing compassion to those in need matters to you, be Be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about Half in 10 via social media so that others in your network can build support for programs that help those in need. My goal with this show is to inform, inspire, and activate listeners to push for positive change. With the support of listeners, I've been able to expand what we do here and make the show better over time. And the only way to continue doing that, to grow and improve, is with your support. I don't need a giant pile of money to run this show. I just need a steady, dependable stream of 5 and $10 monthly donations from people like you. For signing up, you'll also get access to special bonus content, including some behind-the-scenes stuff and more of my commentaries. If you believe in the mission of this show as much as I do, please help it continue to grow and improve by becoming a member today. Details are on the membership page at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. One of the things you say in the introduction that, that's poignant is that, that we look at the academic problems of poverty and we, we have no idea why, but it's rare to have a poor person actually explain it on their own behalf. I love the phrase, rest is a luxury for the rich. 
rich. I get up at 6 a.m., go to school, have a full course load, um, then go to work, then I get the kids and I pick up my husband, I have half an hour to change to go to job two, I get home from around, around 12.30 a.m., then I have the rest of my classes to tend to, I'm in bed by three. That's just an every day, I have two days off from each of my obligations, but still, you know, the, the driving, the commuting, and that's something Barbara Ehrenreich talked about, especially if you're working for minimum wage, the probability is that your housing isn't where your job is, so you have an, an, a, a right. di- distant commute as well, right? Right. And and so what we really get wound up in, and this is, I think, a, a thing that rich folks don't understand, the logistics of our lives take up most of our time. Mm-hmm. We are doing logistics constantly. You're at your first shift at a restaurant. Say you have two jobs, right? It, assume both of them are in restaurants. So you have an electric bill coming up. You know you've got to get that paid this afternoon. You are going to spend your entire morning while you are at work thinking, okay, how busy is it going to be today? How much am I going to make? Am I going to make make enough to pay that bill? And if I don't make enough to get that bill paid, how am I going to call them and let them know that it's going to be a couple of days? And how likely is it that the electric company is going to be really nice to me this month? And once I've done that, do I need to stay late and get more money at this job? And if I do that, is it going to make me late to my next? job, or are they going to cut me early today, in which case I need to call my boss at my second job and ask for extra hours so I can pay my electric bill. Mm -hmm. That is what paying your electric bill is like, Mm -hmm. right? And that's just one tiny thing that most people do without ever thinking about it. And so when you're looking at all all of these logistics and all of these potential pitfalls, when you really are living day to day and paycheck to paycheck, the idea that people have that we're, we're bad citizens, we're lazy, we are the most hardworking people in America. And I am an author now. I have written a book. I can say that with authority. <laughs> I would rather write a book than scrub a fryer. Mm-hmm. Understood. Well, you know, this, this is going to be particularly interesting to people of the Rio Grande Valley or our listeners here because uh, we have the lowest median income in the country. And so there's an awful lot of people working at the level that you're working at. But I did want to go through your definitions, uh, poverty, broke, <laughs> middle class, and rich, because I really like your definitions. Uh, so poor is when the dollar is a miracle. Broke is when five bucks is a miracle. Working class is being broke but doing so in a place that might not be run down. Middle class is being able to own some toys and live in a nice place. And by nice, I don't mean fancy. I mean you can afford to buy your own furniture and not lease it while you still worry about the bills and you aren't constantly worried about homeless. And rich is anything above that. So when you say rich folks, you're talking about all those folks who don't have to worry about leasing their furniture, right? Yeah. When I'm talking about rich folks, I'm talking about folks who have faith that their car will still be running in a month. Mm-hmm. They, they just never think about it. That is rich to me. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and, and for the vast majority of people, you're talking a third of America that's working at minimum wage or just barely above. And the thing about minimum wage that we never look at is that seven twenty-five an hour. Okay, great. How many people are working for seven thirty-five or for seven fifty or for seven sixty-five? Because we get minimum. our raises in nickel. Uh-huh. We get our raises in ten cents. We get our we get raises once a year for maybe a quarter. So when you're talking about minimum wage, I lump all those folks in together. Honey, you're working at a Burger King. I don't care if you're making seven twenty five or seven fifty, you're still making minimum wage as far as I'm concerned. Right. When Absolutely. we're talking about the issues. Yeah, clearly. And and you talk too about the federal minimum for waiting tables being two thirteen an hour and you're supposed to make that up in tips. And if you don't make the minimum wage, you're supposed to go to your boss and say, Hi, I didn't make minimum but of course that risks your job, doesn't it? 
We'll put it this way. I, I know that a lot of corporate restaurants are very scrupulous about doing that because, you know, there's laws involved. I have yet to work at a mom-and-pop restaurant where I could work, look my boss in the face and say, Honey, it was really slow today. You think you could kick me 40 bucks and make it right? Mm-hmm. You don't do that. Right. You don't do that. You don't take that risk. There was a there, the, the finish to this first chapter uh, really uh, touched something inside me about um, temp workers and the use of temp workers so as not to have to pay benefits. And there was a plant you lived near that used to hire temp workers, and then they'd lay them off after 90 days because then they would get permanent job status, and after three weeks of unemployment, they'd hire them back. And, and at some point, uh, it didn't exist anymore because after the tax break expired, the company decided the plant wasn't profitable enough, and they closed it. And uh, the last line in the chapter is, who says capitalism isn't cruel? I think that's something that people don't look at who are old pro-capitalist in their rhetoric sometimes. You know, the interesting thing is I'm not actually anti-capitalist. Right. What I am against is saying, you know, okay, well, there's winners and losers in this system, so screw you, losers. Mm-hmm. What we should be saying is there are winners and losers in this system, and in exchange for winning, we will take care of the losers because without them, we could not win. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I have been rocketed out of my station. I'm, I went from being a night cook at IHOP to a published author doing a radio tour in under a year. <laughs> you know what I am grateful for? Every service worker in America who has made this possible for me, because this is not a thing that I did alone. This came after years of talking with everybody that I've worked with, after years of hearing people talk about what their lives were. All of those things came together. I could not have written this book without all of those people. And the fact that I keep that in mind is what capitalism is supposed to be, that you look down below you if you are in a position of power and you look down and you say, how do I help you guys climb up instead of saying, let me pull this ladder up behind me. Yeah, that, that, there is enough to go around. Mm-hmm. So compassionate capitalism might be a phrase that you would use then. Well, I don't necessarily know that I could personally use that, but, you know, yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about some of the, the working conditions because you mentioned, you mentioned a, a, a major restaurant chain and, uh, and at times you were working uh, where you had to run into the freezer a few minutes to cool down because the the fryers are really hot and your arms and hands are covered in scars from the fryers. And that seems to be typical of the working conditions that people face when they're working in a, a fast food kitchen. Oh, fast food, slow food, doesn't matter. Any kitchen is dangerous and mm-hmm. hot. That's that's just, you're, you're surrounding yourself with fire. So yeah. <laughs> it's not going to be cold. But when the air conditioner goes out... I'm in the middle of the summer in the desert and you're in a kitchen. Yeah, it reaches intolerable conditions. But that's even beyond the restaurant industry. We had what Amazon was, and it had had warehouses where they actually had to keep ambulances outside for the heat stroke. Mm. I mean... And, and, and they, they just did. They started calling the ambulances and just having them stationed outside instead of just making it so people didn't get heat stroke so frequently. But what we get when we get injuries, the trouble we run into is there's nothing we can do about them. If you go to workers' comp, and, and that is a system that's supposed to be set up to protect us, right? If you get hurt at work, your, your employer's supposed to pay for it. Mm-hmm. I don't know many service workers that are going to go call workers' comp because what happens after that is you start getting written up for every minor infraction and then you lose your job with quickness. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you, I mean, nothing provable, but eh, yeah. it's, it's a pattern. Yeah, workers' comp is one issue. Another is, and, and I did not know this until I read your book, that you have no legal right to take breaks in America? 
And uh, that uh, there's no law that says that employers should require breaks. And and you mentioned potential bladder infections, and that that's one of the issues that that is a stream throughout this. Is like you know there are certain people that are allowed to go to the bathroom, and certain people who are not on their jobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not only that, certain people are allowed to make the decision of whether or not they need to go to the bathroom and their work can wait for five minutes. And people who actually need to ask permission and justify their own, you know, waste systems to their boss. Mm-hmm. The bit- number of times I've had to go to my boss and say, listen, I have some gastrointestinal issues. I really need to go to the bathroom. They go, you can't. And I go, I have to actually describe what is happening in my guts so that I can go to the bathroom to save myself from embarrassing myself in front of everybody. The fact that that is a thing that I have to do for $7.25 an hour? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, uh, you talk about how easy it is to get fired and that people don't understand that. I mean, that's, that's why people find themselves hand-to-mouth sometimes is they had a job and they were living with almost enough money to make it and then they get fired for some ridiculous reason, whether it's working more than one job or because one week you're working 10 hours instead of 20 and uh, you work 30 when it's busy and 10 when it's slow and they let you go when it's slow. And all of that figures into how often someone can not keep a job even though they're trying to work, right? Yeah. I got fired once because my car broke down and I couldn't make it to work. I've been fired, I mean, and I've been fired not as frequently as I've quit or or moved to a different job, but it's happened more than once. And what I've found is that the reasons are always really interesting. Like, I got fired once so that my boss could hire his girlfriend. Mm -hmm. And, and, you know, there's X amount of spaces on staff, and he needed her to pay rent. And so he looked at which one of us did he want to go. Well, it was me. Mm -hmm. And I didn't get along with him, so it was a really good excuse. Mm-hmm. I mean, things like that happen. I know somebody who got fired because they had to go to the hospital for three days and they missed two shifts. And when they came back, they have no job. Mm-hmm. Well, let's talk about um, your access to medical and dental care because that's really a, a, an, an interesting story on your part in particular. Uh, you had an accident that caused damage to your teeth and you've mm-hmm. reached a point where you couldn't even smile anymore. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, it's horrifyingly embarrassing, Um, and it's incredibly painful, and it does a number on your self-esteem, and it shouldn't happen because dental care is not considered a medical thing in America, and this goes all the way back to when dentists were barbers, Mm -hmm. and they were different than doctors, right? And we have not changed our policies since the 1800s. So dentistry and medical care are considered to be a different thing. Now, the fact that my jaw decayed to the point that I have um, inner ear problems, that I have headaches, that it's like a legitimate problem with infection, those things don't make it count as medical, regardless of the impact it has on the rest of your body. So what we wound up with is we've got this whole class of people that have no access to dental care because dental care generally isn't covered by Medicaid. It's generally not covered in these safety net programs. Neither is vision, and in a lot of cases, neither is mental health. So we've got this patchwork in the safety net, but I think people think that it covers more than it does. It covers basic doctor's cares, it covers basic hospital visits, ER visits, maybe it covers prescriptions, but you're not getting glasses and a new set of dentures. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, you had some less than adequate care on, on those teeth, and, uh, and in that encounter, there was some embarrassment because of the way you looked. They accused you of being a meth addict, which you weren't. 
Uh, oh, I finally walked into a dentist after a few years. I saved up enough, um, and, and we had a kind of a good spot, and I had enough money to go. So I went to a dentist, and the first thing she said was, well, you really need to quit doing math. And I looked at her, and I said, I don't do math. And she said, honey, look at your teeth. Of course you do. And then she lectured me for the entire time she was doing this exam. 45 minutes, I'm in this chair. She's telling me about the dangers of drug use and how, you know, meth is going to destroy your life. And I'm looking at her going, listen, I smoked a little weed when I was in college, man, but I do not use meth. I lack the giant sores. I don't look older than I am. I have none of the side effects. I just have really bad teeth. Mm-hmm. Um, and but but that didn't seem to matter because once she came to that judgment, she decided that I must be lying to her because she could see clearly on the one piece of evidence that she had, and she made her case in her head, and that's how it was. It was the single most humiliating experience of my life, and I include working in an industry in which men would touch my butt with their hands while I'm trying to work and ask me to come home with them in not so polite ways. Mm-hmm. I would still rather have that happen for that 45 minutes than I would be in that chair with that dentist, because she made me feel like an absolutely worthless human being, and the worst part is she knew she was doing it, and she enjoyed it. And that is what being poor is, is always being ready for somebody to enjoy humiliating you. Hey, Jay. It's Wade. Got through listening to the Christmas episode. I loved it. It was great. And I wanted to, to say in response to the Maryland School District, you know, basically wiping the calendar of, of religion, that that's, that's kind of where every time we talk about religion in school, it's always, we got to get religion out of schools. we got to get religion out of schools. But I think that's that's a mistake to go to that extreme. Instead of, you know, because the Muslims wanted to, their holidays recognized, instead of saying, well, we're just not going to do religion altogether. Wouldn't it make more sense to take, like, you know, a day or two before that holiday for the kids to get off, you know, and explain, you know, tell the story of, of, of why this is an important day to the Islamic faith. Same thing for Hanukkah, same thing for Christianity. And I don't, I'm pretty ignorant when it comes to Buddhism and, and uh, Hinduism, so I don't really know if they have a day. But if they do, that's fine. It can easily be included. You know, I think kids go to school way too often anyway. And giving them an extra day off, one, it's associating a, something positive with, you know, the Islamic faith. And two, it's explaining a little bit of, of, of them. It's, it's humanizing them. Because uh, by ignoring religion, what we're doing is making people ignorant of each other. And ignorance leads to, you know, this idiotic, you know, diatribes that people go on, you know, against, uh, you know, mainly Muslims these days. So... I don't understand if schools are just supposed to teach, let them teach. That's not promoting a religion. My God, a religion is a real thing. It's it's the real world. It's not going away. You can explain something without promoting it. You know, schools teach sexual education. They're not promoting sex. They're just teaching. It's a real thing. It's going to happen. There you go. So I don't understand why schools feel that the best idea is to just completely ignore it and just kind of stick your head in the sand and hope that it goes away. I think that we're doing a disservice to these kids. You know, when I was 
in, in high school, we never learned anything about religion, ever. And so it was, you know, everything that I've learned, I've had to learn on my own. And that's just because I'm a naturally inquisitive person, you know, and I spent a lot of time in the Middle East. But I just think that the idea of, of teaching religion and exposing kids, hey, there are differences out there, and these are kind of what they are. And I just think I don't see how that's a negative thing. All right, Jay. How are we going? Hi, Jay. I'm Sandy, currently living in Germany. Let me start by saying thank you so much for the Christmas episode and even more for all the hard work you do all year round to bring us important information about social justice problems and perspectives on social justice stories you've often heard in the news and for specific suggestions about how to make a difference. So I do know that obviously in some pretty crucial ways, the Christmas thing is not the most important social justice issue out there. So it's definitely part of the larger systemic problems that the and that the episode is mostly for laughs about fake and sadly not always fake outrage over perceived oppression against the majority but there were a couple of things i wanted to comment on if i may i suppose this is where i need to come clean and admit that i am a christian but none of my problems were with the tone or the criticism of christmas or the outrage about the supposed war on christmas first i need to fact check the jimmy Dore show I will admit I got frustrated listening to that one. Again, not because of the, oh my God, be more respectful, because no, there are legitimate problems with the non-critical celebration of Christian Christmas, but because of facts. I don't know how many times I stopped, I stopped counting. I yelled Saturnalia to correct him, and I'd say more Christians know this part of the story than he realizes because my borderline fundamentalist parents taught me this part when I was a kid, and at that time, neither of them even had bachelor degrees. So this is actually, or was anyway, wider known than many think. I don't know what his source was, but it used an M, but I have to admit it drove me to distraction. But more significantly, he left out the element that by the 4th century, in many parts of the Roman Empire, Sol Invictus had come to replace Saturnalia, and more than just co-opting a holiday, there was some very real blending of Jesus with Sol Invictus who was also worshipped as a monotheistic god at this time. But yes, either way, this is syncretism. Let's be honest, there's a lot of syncretism, sometimes more problematic than others in Christianity. Also, not really limited to the Christian religion and perhaps has to do with its ties to Rome, which Roman religion itself was extremely synchronistic than anything else. Maybe that part's pure speculation. Also, the Council of Nicaea was not about the biblical canon. The New Testament was not decided at the Council of Nicaea. But Nicholas, who was canonized in the 11th century, not as late as Jimmy Dore claims, here in Leipzig, which is about to celebrate its 1,000th anniversary, the oldest church is Nikolai Kierka, because among other things, Nicholas was the patron saint of trade, and Leipzig was a cross-trade route trading city. Anyway. Nicholas was said to have been the one who, in a moment of pique, slapped Arius at the Council of Nicaea, and he is also said to have torn down pagan temples, including a temple of Artemis. So yes, not the jolly old St. Nicholas we know. Beyond that, he was absolutely right to point out that Santa Claus is an amalgamation, including St. Nicholas of Myra, as well as, ironically, yeah, I think this fits the true definition of irony, pagan figures. I want to say what some of your clips came to that. There is a war on Christmas. Wait, hear me out. It's not waged by liberals, Christians, or atheists, or Jews, 
and it's not waged by Muslims anywhere on the political spectrum. It's the same as the war on Christianity. It is waged by conservative Christians being in bed with capitalism and consumerism and empire. It's waged every time the name of God or Jesus is used to support apartheid and land theft, every time Jesus or Paul is used to support trickle-down economics, bootstrapism, or a strange idea that in a limited goods economy that those who have matter and are virtuous and those who don't have are just lazy. It's the war that takes a religion that started as the religion of women and slaves in the lower class and makes it a religion about clinging to privilege at the expense of people of color, women, the emoji, marginalized orientation, gender, and intersex individuals community, people who aren't Christians, the poor, etc. And sadly, it's a war that started the moment Constantine married the power of empire to the church, which maybe, just maybe, means Christmas itself is a part of the war on Christianity. Well, at least the non-critical celebration of it. Anyway, there's so much more I could say, but I've rambled on long enough. So thank you, Jay, for all your hard work. Thank you for your responsiveness whenever I've reached out to you on Twitter. Thank you for playing one of my favorite Christmas songs, Star Williams, The Christians, and The Pagans. And yes, Jay, please keep up the great work. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. Now, we started today's episode talking about how people very often have no idea that they're being helped by a government program. And they'll deny that they've ever received that kind of help simply because they just don't even realize it. And yet almost everyone in one way or another has benefited from government support programs. And I could not help but be reminded of one of my favorite clips of all time from way back in the day. Uh, this is I mean, probably pre-2010. I don't even remember when this came from. Uh, Glenn Beck was still on Fox News and he had Craig T. Nelson, you know, coach, from way, way back in the day, uh, he had Coach on as a guest, and this was the exchange, and it still baffles me to this day. You know, we are a republic, and that means that we need to be represented. So we're not are you being, seriously? We're not being, listen, I'm not going to pay, I'm not going to pay any more money. What these people are asking me to do. You're seriously saying I'm not going to, you're not No, I'm asking that. Glenn Beck to promote this. I'm saying it personally, but I'm asking no, you. Are you saying you personally won't pay income tax anymore? I'm really thinking about it, Glenn, because as a, as a fiscally responsible grandfather, there are programs that they're asking me to fund that I refuse to fund. You know, I have to tell you. If I, the I, veterans coming back are not getting what they deserve, those people that have served, that put themselves in harm's way, if my children, my grandchildren, and my great-grandchild, who's about to be here, thank you, grandson, is not going to be educated properly, then I'm, I'm through with it. You know, I'm not going to spend money on these things that you're asking me to... They should be allowed to go bankrupt. What happened? We are a capitalistic society. Okay, I go into business, I don't make it, I go bankrupt. They're not going to bail me out. I've been on food stamps and welfare. Anybody help me out? No. No. They gave me hope, and they gave me encouragement, and they gave me a vision. And that came from my education. So to me, 
you know, going back to California and the hedge fund, because we're no longer a state, I just feel like going after our kids, our education, and the most valuable people we have on the planet, teachers. I, I, I just got to tell you, well, I'm so sick and tired of it. Yeah, I'm just yeah. sick and tired of it. And I'm old enough now, and I've been in the business 45 years, they can't fire me. Yeah. <laughs> I can always fire you. Did you catch that? I've been on food stamps and welfare. Anybody help me out? No. So like I said, I, I'm baffled by this. I, I wish I knew what he meant. If he meant something other than what he said, I wish I knew what it was. But at face value, that level of cognitive dissonance is stunning. But it goes a long way to explain the sort of ideology that is you know, virulently anti-government that so many people have while they actively see the benefits in the systems that the government provides, they just have no idea that there's any connection between the two. It, it's really remarkable. All the more reason to support campaigns that support government programs, if for no other reason, to get the word out about the good works that they're doing. So anyways, that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash left. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past all the sad stories and See you